city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. A microcosm of society, the jury room has always fascinated people. A variety of individuals from different backgrounds all working together to make a judgment on the fate of an individual. These judgments are some of the biggest decisions a person will face in their lifetime and can have serious consequences for both individuals on trial, such as when someone is wrongly imprisoned and society where the legal system fails to rehabilitate, deter, or incarcerate guilty individuals. Part of the fascination of jury decision-making relates to human fallibility and the prejudices and biases that can have an impact on a verdict. Films such as the 1957 12 Angry Men, where one man systematically dismantles the biases and assumptions of his fellow jurors, dramatically introduced this idea into the popular culture, and since the 50s, nothing has changed. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and co-host of A Thread of Evidence with my other co-host, forensic psychologist and private investigator, Dr. Joni Johnston. Welcome to the show, Joni. We're doing it together again. How fun. I'm delighted to be here as usual. Well, I thought we'd get right to it because there's so much to talk about with regards to the jury mindset. Now, I deliberately chose you not only as my co-host, but as a forensic expert who's board certified in all of these things to help our audience out understanding the jury mindset, which can be kind of confusing to people like you and I that have to be very in tune to that jury mindset when we're giving forensic testimony in court. We really do. And it just comes up in so many different, you know, so many different ways. It comes up in terms of picking the jury and the attitudes and beliefs that jurors bring into the courtroom from the very beginning. It impacts how they view us as experts. It impacts how they see the attorneys. I mean, it really does impact, I think, just about every aspect of a trial. And you know, there's an entire industry that has built up around the psychology and figuring out and psychologically profiling jurors. And, uh, you know, there are uh, jury consultation companies and jury consultation experts all over the United States. Well, there are, and I think it is because I think there are plenty of attorneys who would say that, you know, cases are won or lost almost at the point when you pick your jury. It's a very important part of the jury, you know, of the trial process. And, you know, I don't think the, the average uh, person uh, that, you know, sees things on television and sees these court dramas or watches the end results of the court dramas really understand exactly what you just said, that, that the case can be won and lost even before any of the evidence is submitted and any of the witnesses take the witness stand to actually testify. 
Yeah, it's a real challenge, I think, for attorneys from both sides to try to kind of navigate this minefield of life experiences and attitudes and demographics of each of the prospective jurors that they're interviewing. And, you know, just recently, and we'll talk about one of my cases, but I was asked to have some significant participation in the jury selection process uh, with some attorneys in a criminal defense case uh, involving a law enforcement officer, and they wanted me to go over the... uh, the, I guess the, the, the question and answer forms, uh, which in this particular case, I think there were 45 questions asked to the jurors to try to determine, you know, who was suitable to sit on that jury. And I was privy to some of that uh, information. And, and I was asked for my, you know, my opinions in regards to some of the responses that some of the jurors gave, because uh I was brought in very early in the case uh, as the jury was was actually being selected. Have you ever done anything like that? I have in a couple of different ways. I've definitely been involved as a consulting expert at times, helping attorneys look for jurors and evaluate their attitudes for men- toward mental illness, for example, or toward an insanity defense. And also um, in terms of helping cross-examine an opposing expert to tease out potential biases in reports or testimony. Well, see, there you go. You just underscored what I'm talking about, about forensic experts being used uh, in all manner of ways uh, by uh, criminal defense attorneys and perhaps even prosecutors to determine whether the jury uh, members that that they're going to have are going to be suitable. And boy, I've got a couple of stories to tell, uh, but that's a little bit later on in our show today. You know, I thought we'd talk about some of the issues that uh, that we experience as experts uh, with respect to jurors being biased. And I thought maybe uh, you would be the best expert between the two of us to sort of explain some of these terms, uh, such as implicit bias and confirmation bias and some of these other things. Why don't we start with confirmation bias? What is that? You know, confirmation bias is basically a shortcut that we all make. And it serves a very important purpose because it helps us kind of narrow information and make decisions quickly. So it's not something that's specific to a jury. It's something that we all do. The problem, however, is that it, you know, we think of jurors coming in as blank slates and they're going to start looking at the, um, you know, at the evidence, you know, from a completely neutral standpoint, and yet we know that in reality, jurors with their attitudes and beliefs tend to come up with a hypothesis early in a trial. They begin working to prove this hypothesis, which is often based on those values and beliefs that they bring in. Um, They begin to prove it right as they're listening to the testimony instead of working to prove it wrong or even evaluate it. They tend to give preferential treatment to evidence and testimony that supports this existing belief. They tend to better recall evidence and testimony that supports this side. And they tend to kind of entrench themselves in this stance before the trial is over, which of course means they miss out on the opportunity to be objective all the way through, to consider the pros and cons, to weigh the evidence objectively all the way through. But it's not something that I think jurors or we as human beings do intentionally. It's just human nature. 
And, you know, I think that's exactly right. And, and, you know, that's going to lead into something we'll talk about in a little bit called pre-decisional, you know, preferences uh, and, and leading and leading verdicts. But, uh, you know, another thing, speaking about people that may not be cognizant of, of their biases, uh, and, and that's implicit bias. And that generally, implicit bias generally refers to the attitudes and stereotypes that affect our understanding, actions, and decisions but in an unconscious manner. Yes, and then the confirmation bias, of course, is then we subjectively pay attention to information that confirms our pre-existing beliefs. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's sort of what this whole pre-decisional distortion means, because that's actually where bias is used in, in sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in, in which the decision maker is especially likely to choose their initially preferred options, which may be one of guilt or innocence, depending on the juror. Absolutely. And I think when it particularly becomes concerning from a legal standpoint is when you have, for example, a foreman of a juror, of a jury who has a lot of influence and begins to, you know, kind of in some respects, maybe unconsciously kind of steer that the rest of the jurors into his own confirmation bias. Well, you know, that's, uh, that's a really important point that you, that you bring up because, and I'm going to talk about this case later on in our discussion, but I actually had that problem. Our defense team had that problem with the Madam Jury Foreman. But we'll talk about that, uh, you know, in, in just a little bit. So, you know, kind of talking about the, the, uh, the biases, the confirmation bias, the implicit bias, I'm just sort of reminded of a very, very brief story I want to share with you. Uh, I've been called to jury duty uh, probably about five or six times. Nobody has ever selected me. And I think, I think we understand why, <laughs> you know, first of all, I spent my entire career, uh, my initial career in law enforcement in the last 36 years as, as a forensic expert. So I'm definitely somebody that can connect the dots. And so I'm not a person that they really want, especially on a, on a criminal trial as a jury person, but I got to share this story with you. I won't even tell you what County I was in, but uh, I actually get, I'm happy because I get through uh, the, the first part of, uh, of the jury selection process where I leave the giant room, okay, where I'm like doing some work, waiting to get my name called to see if my name's going to get called or I'm going to be released. And son of a gun, if they don't call me. So I'm going, oh, fantastic. I made it. I made it through the first set and I'm actually getting called into the courtroom where I get to see the defendant and I get to see the prosecutor and the criminal defense attorney. So I'm sitting in there with about you know, 30 or 40 other people, uh, and, uh, and everybody introduces themselves and, uh, and the, the defendant is asked to stand up and he's in a suit and everything. And, and he stands up and I, I kid you not, Joni, the guy next to me, this is my fellow juror, my prospective juror. He whispers in my ear, man, that guy's a total dirt bag. I know he did it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and we haven't even been selected and this guy's already made up his mind and I looked at the guy you know and I kind of hushed him up and I said oh man was was that not a wake-up call <laughs> can you I mean that that is truly kind of alarming when you think about 
the fact that no evidence has been presented at all. Well, the people just, I mean, they just asked him to introduce himself and all he did was stand up. <laughs> Strike one. Yeah, Strike he one, stood up. Gone. Yeah. All of a sudden, you're gone, buddy. Right off. In that guy's mind, that guy was gone. Uh, and but, I, but these things, unfortunately, do exist. And, uh, and, you know, in this one case that I had with the, one of these police officers, because recently I've just been doing a lot of uh, criminal defense work uh, defending officers. And by the way, you know, full disclosure, I've prosecuted, you know, a few officers, including uh, three of them for murder. And, uh, and, uh, you know, it's just so interesting to, to see how things get put together. And my wife has been lucky enough to be uh, selected as a jury foreman. And what you said about the jury foreman being able to uh, persuade jurors one way or the other is really true. I know in my in my wife's case, uh, she uh, managed it, it correctly because she also had a law enforcement background. She managed to correctly redirect the jurors back to what the evidence was and worked very hard to remove their biases and prejudices. And thank God in that particular case, uh, the gentleman uh, who was being uh, charged uh, with, with a uh, assault on a, uh, a young teen uh, and all he did was, you know, kind of spin him around and kind of wake him up for a second because the kid was being belligerent and he was being almost violent to people. And, and this was a coach and the, and the coach just kind of spun him around and, and told him to knock it off. And, and the parent uh, actually uh, had, had the, uh, had the coach arrested and he was being prosecuted basically for child abuse. And that's all he did. And, and thank God everybody uh, spoke in his behalf and everything, but boy, can you imagine just, spinning a kid, or kid around to get some focus out of him. I mean, he never hit him. He never did anything. He just took this kid and spun him around and so that he would look at the coach. And they were willing to prosecute. The district attorney was willing to prosecute uh, this poor coach for, for child abuse. It was absolutely incredible. Well, and it's interesting because we talked about the confirmation bias and another bias that we all can kind of fall prey to is its availability bias, which just means that vivid events or emotional events tend to kind of affect decision-making at a greater proportion than other ones. And you can imagine most of us have these fundamental just feelings about nobody better touch my kid, right? I mean, we have just this visceral reaction to that. And so you can certainly see how, uh, you know, an attorney could easily in some respects, and it sounds like fortunately did not, spin this into a horrific story of child abuse, which is kind of what you're describing when in fact, in fact, the facts were much different, it sounds like, than that. Oh, yeah. I mean, you really have to kind of consider the total, what we call, you and I call in our industry, the the totality of circumstances and really take that entire thing under account. And I think part of the problem we have uh, when we as experts are presenting evidence is we, and this, I'm going to speak just for, for my, you know, my opinion is that I don't think that you really get a, a jury of your peer. Okay. So, you know, a jury of my peer uh, is going to be people that are knowledgeable. They're going to be educated. Uh, they're going to be open-minded. Uh, they're going to understand the significance of, uh, 
of evidence, and they're going to be able to connect the dots. And some of the things that I am seeing, and I want to, I want to, you know, hear your opinion and your experience is that we are finding that juries now are so diverse with respect to uh, their education. Uh, and lack of education, their amount of experience, their lack of experience, their ability to speak English and comprehend English, uh, and their inability to do that. I mean, just a lot of things. We have a lot more millennials now that I want to talk about, uh, you know, going in uh, into our jury. And, and I think I just read something recently uh, where pretty soon the millennials are going to comprise uh, the vast majority of uh, of people in the United States. And, you know, when we talk about millennials, we're talking about people that are basically born between 1981 and 1996. So we're looking at people, you know, about 23 to 38 years old. And uh, we're just finding that they're more uh, ethnically and racially diverse. Uh, they've got a higher education level, but less life experience than their older generations. And uh, just, you know, some more issues that, that I'd like to, to take up with you when we return uh, in our next segment with a thread of evidence. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist, with my co-host, board-certified forensic psychologist, Dr. Joni Johnson on America Out Loud. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli with Dr. Joni Johnston on a thread of evidence, and we're discussing the jury mindset and the psychology of the jurors and their different biases and how these things uh, work, you know, positively and negatively that influence their opinions. You know, Joni, before we left off in, in the first segment, I was talking about millennials as jurors. And I was mentioning, you know, they have a higher level of education, but they have a little bit less life experience than the older generations. And, you know, many of the millennials and I think this is for uh, economic reasons or just sort of insulated from society because they still live with their parents and they, they have sort of, uh, you know, less of a uh, less, less life experience, I guess. You know, they do. And they've also had different life experiences. And one of the things I've seen um, looking at some of the jury research over the past 30 years is I think there has been, and a much needed shift from looking at demographics in terms of weeding out jurors or prospective jurors and, um, and looking much more at life experience and attitudes and values, because I think those are some of the things that really are going to be much more, much more closely related in the long run to a particular case. And so, for example, I know you and I were talking earlier about millennials and um, we, you know, we know, for example, that millennials, that the whole issue of mass shooters and mass shooting and safety 
is much more of an issue for millennials than it certainly was in our generation. And there's been some new research that shows that when you're talking about product safety, when you're talking about holding companies or restaurants or schools liable for mass shootings, it doesn't seem like it's going to be as effective to say, okay, hey, we met the minimum standard that we had to do for the public school system. Because it's such a value. You're going to have to show we did more than was expected for us. Here are the extra steps that we took. And so I think we are going to have to adjust um, to our new jury pool and recognize and address those values and life experiences. Well, you know, you're, you're exactly right. And, and some of the values uh, are sometimes questionable with jurors as, as to what, you know, they will, what they'll tolerate and what they won't tolerate with respect to behavior and thing, behavioral issues. You know, for instance, you know, one of the biggest problems that we have on juries in, in our criminal justice system is something referred to uh, as jury nullification. And, and what jury nullification essentially means is that the jurors uh, get read from the good book by the judge, and you as an expert, Joni, you and I both know that the good book means basically the, the book of jury instructions. Uh, and in the state of California, for instance, it's called the CALCRIM, C-A-L-C-R-I-M. And it's actually codified uh, sections in there that discuss various penal code sections or criminal statutes in the state of California and what's to, what constitutes the elements of these different crimes. And so the judge goes through a lengthy process, uh, no matter what state you're in, and they read from the good book of that state. And they remind the jurors that the standard of proof is not probable cause. The standard of proof is guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. That means that there can be no reasonable doubt that this person committed the offense that they're being charged with if the juror is going to uh, make a guilty verdict. Okay? And, and, And I think that's lost on a lot of jurors. You know, I think that it is. I think so many concepts are lost on jurors because I think most jurors rely on their common sense. And sometimes common sense isn't so common, you know, in the sense that, you know, I mean, I run into that all the time. We're talking about mental illness. You know, there's different states have different definitions of insanity. And yet my experience in talking to jurors after cases is that they really don't pay that much attention to the actual legal definition of insanity in that particular state. They do tend to rely much more on their attitudes toward mental illness in general, um, how much they think mental illness and violence are linked, and also their own ideas about what insanity means, even if it's possible. And so this idea of jury nullification, kind of in my world, I've seen plenty of, t- plenty of times when if you look at the California definition of insanity, there have been plenty of cases where there was tremendous evidence that this person had a pre-existing horrible psychiatric history, had been involuntarily committed, had a history of delusions and hallucinations. And yet, because I think the act was violent um, and there was a lot of fear about this person getting out if, if the, you know, the verdict was in GRI, the jury just said, we're ignoring the facts. We're keeping this person in no matter what. Well, you know, let's uh, let, let's have a discussion about that uh, on the mental health aspects and using that as as a defensive uh, strategy, uh, because you and I had a discussion, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, where you were, you know, kind of reminding me that a lot of people think that, 
all sorts of people get out on the insanity plea, and, and that's really not the truth, is it? It is absolutely not true. So, for example, one of the biggest myths is that the insanity defense is overused, and yet we know that the use of the insanity defense is about 1% of all criminal cases, and about 25% of that 1% are actually successful. And yet, there is a common perception that the insanity defense is just something a lot of attorneys throw at a case to get their, help their client beat the rap. And I can just tell you there's just tremendous evidence that that is not the case. But in spite of that evidence, I think that is not the, quote, common sense that most jurors bring into a trial. No, you're, you're exactly right. And I'm glad you mentioned that 1% statistic because in my basic training in forensic psychology, that's the way I was trained as well. And so it isn't at all the way, you know, television uh, in, you know, these different movies and these different so-called, you know, CSI series sort of make these things out. Uh, although, you know, the, the attorney is going to do, because the attorney's an advocate, they're not experts. Or, you know, our advocacy between attorneys and experts is totally different. You know, they have to do whatever they're going to do. They're charged with, you know, defending their clients' constitutional rights. Uh, and as long as they act in an ethical manner, that's what they do. That's not us. We do not advocate for people, nor do we advocate for entities. We advocate for facts and evidence as best that we can determine through our review uh, of the evidence. And that's the type of testimony that we give. Uh, and, you know, sometimes we just differ from our attorney clients and they just have to be mature enough, uh, you know, to understand that. You know, I want to get into this whole issue uh, about the pre-decisional distortion and the pre-decisional preferences. We're essentially, you know, the same thing. Can can you talk a little bit about that and this whole idea of the self-fulfilling prophecy and put that in context so that our audience sort of understands where we're coming from as forensic experts? Well, what some of the research shows is that most jurors kind of go into initially, of course, they bring their own ideas and values and beliefs into the courtroom, but they start out the decision-making process or the evidence-observing process really with as much of a, you know, kind of a neutral playing field as possible. And yet, as they're watching and, and listening to the evidence, at some point, most jurors will then pick, kind of pick a side. And that side then becomes really the focus for the rest of the trial for that person. As we mentioned earlier, they then begin to kind of pay more attention to evidence that supports their verdict basically in their head and to ignore or discount or make excuses for any information that is not in line with their kind of pre-existing verdict. Boy, so, I, think that, I think that's a perfect explanation. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just loved it because you just really put it out there. And, it, you know, the challenge I think is to know, of course, at what point that happens. And even more importantly, for us as expert witnesses, for attorneys and for judges, I think have a special responsibility to kind of help jurors understand that this is a likely or a potential problem that can occur for them. And to, to you know, as part of the jury instructions to help them understand the, the need to kind of keep weighing the evidence objectively looking at both sides of it all the way through that process. So, Joni, let me ask you a question. When you are in front of the jury, when you're up, up on the stand, tell me how uh, you react to the jury and what types of things do you use? What types of techniques do you use as an expert 
to make sure that you are holding that jury's attention? I think a couple of different things have worked for me. You know, one of them, I think, being because I do a lot of report writing because I'm evaluating for various mental illnesses oftentimes or for insanity and insanity defense. And so one of the things that's important to me is to be transparent in my thinking, transparent in my data collection, um, and transparent in, in explaining to the jury how I arrived at the decision that I arrived and how I excluded alternative hypotheses. Because I really do think it's important for juries to understand, because I think one of the biases that we have to overcome as expert witnesses, I think there's, there's not only kind of a belief that, oh, these must be hired guns, but I think obviously the other attorney a lot of times tries to make us look like hired guns. And so we have to, I think, address that in some way or the other. And one of the ways I like to do that, in addition to making it clear that I'm being paid for my time and not my testimony, is to help, again, help them understand um, that I considered all the multiple, all the sources that were available to me. Um, I'm often really dismayed, I'm a consulting expert, to still see so many forensic psychologists who are doing an evaluation who still, when they're evaluate, when they're going out and interviewing sources, they're only interviewing sources that the defendant gave them, or they're basically taking the defendant at face value about what happened. And it's very important to me to say, okay, who was this person around during this period of time? I need to look at police reports. I need to look at, talk to family members, to friends, to business associates, whoever has information around that period of time. So I can then feel good myself that I'm arriving at a decision that I feel comfortable with, but also be able to communicate to the jury that, hey, I'm open to talking and looking at all the evidence, whether it fits the attorney who, you know, is calling me to the stand or not, and, and also to let them know that I have considered all these alternatives, and here's why I picked this one, and here's why I excluded the other ones. And, and you know, Joni, I have to tell you something. That is why you are such a valued member of our forensic death investigations team, because you're nobody's fool, and you are not a person that's going to allow themselves to be focused into one area, you know, sort of steered uh, by the people that hire us to just look at you know, one set of facts, you reach out, you keep a very open mind and you reach out and you try to find as many uh, circumstances, statements, facts, forensic evidence, whatever uh, to support whatever findings and opinions that you have. And, and you know, it, it is a part of the, the job, uh, even though you and I don't like it, uh, when we get up on the stand, uh, the impeachment process, you know, by opposing counsel is, is, of course, part of the game. And it's a dance, uh, you know, that that we do with them. And, of course, you know, one of the questions they're going to do, they're going to go down through your billables, you know, your billing statements and say, well, okay, so, you know, how much do you charge an hour and how much did you charge in this case and how many hours and this and that? You know, the first thing that comes out of my mouth when I'm asked those questions is everybody's, everybody in this courtroom is being paid. <laughs> everybody yeah. in this courtroom, you are being paid, counselor. Everybody is being paid to be here. Uh, but like you said, we're being paid for our time and uh, and not for how we testimony, you know, how we testify on the stand. You know, one of the things that, that I do before I take the stand uh, and you know, it, it, it's, it's weird because sometimes I'll just be brought in uh, mid-trial. But recently, especially with some of my criminal defense cases, the attorneys are bringing me in right at the beginning of trial because they find value in my ability to 
and, and by the way, this is predicated upon the judge allowing me as a witness to be in there, because that doesn't always happen, as you know. Uh, but if the judge does allow me to be in there, I'm getting an, a, a good uh, idea on what uh, the other witnesses are saying. And of course, I'm taking copious notes and, and consulting uh, with the attorneys, no matter who I'm working with. But also, I'm taking a very good look at the jury. And when I get on the stand, I maintain eye contact probably about 90% of the time with the jury. I want to look, make eye contact with every single one of them. I want to know who's paying attention, who's not paying attention. And I think what's helped me as an expert is before I was a police officer, I was a teacher. So I'm used to talking to people. I'm used to synthesizing complex things down so that a layperson can understand them. And I would think because what you do, Joni, is very scientific in nature, that must be a formidable challenge for you as well. It is. And I mean, Ron, let me just give you a plug here because I've certainly seen you in action and know what a formidable witness you are. Um, I think you are incredible at connecting with a jury. Um, I just really, that's such a strength, I think, for you. And I, something I want to maybe you know, really make sure that I do as well. Um, but I think in terms of when you have like complex testimony, and I know you also give very complex testimony, they're telling a story. You know, all of our cases, all of our evaluations, all of our stuff really boils down to telling a story about a person or about an event or about, you know, what we found or whatever. And I think that's been something that I certainly try to do is make it in a story where the person can kind of understand that. And also I will, I will say, and I've never found this to work against me. And I think for some reason, sometimes experts are hesitant to do this, but there is nothing wrong. And I think there's a lot right in being willing to say, this is the, this is limitations of my testimony. Oh, um, no, I absolutely, I absolutely agree with absolutely. that. St These staying are, in your wheelhouse, don't you think that's so important? I think it is so important. And I think it's, it's so important to be able to say, I don't know. If I, do, you know, if I don't know or I can't answer that question, I have no problem whatsoever saying right. that and explaining right. that. That's exactly right. You know, one of the things that, that I don't like, and I'm so mindful of it to, to not make this mistake, is going outside of my wheelhouse. And I can tell you, you know, just this last week, I was deposed on five out of five days. And I can tell you that on two of those five different days where I gave testimony, opposing counsel tried to trap me, and they deliberately tried to get me out of my wheelhouse uh, to offer testimony uh, that I have no education, training, or experience in it. And I, and then the other thing they try to do, I don't know if this happens to you, but I'd love to hear it, is if they ask you to speculate. Do you ever get that? You know, I'm kind of lucky because maybe it's because I'm evaluating and I, you know, typically a defendant and trying to put that in context. Um, I guess, yeah, I guess occasionally I get more of a hyp hypothetical question, which is maybe what you're talking about. Like, well, could it be this? Or could it be that, um, you know, could this alternative explanation, which is, I think, why, why I said to you, one of my favorite things to do, and I think important things to do, is to do it as proactively as I can, which is to say, okay, here are the alternatives I considered. And, and, and hopefully I'm able to include some of those speculative questions in, here's why this is not likely. You know, exactly. so you, they can then, you know, ahead of time. 
Exactly. You know, and, you know, we have to always remind the attorneys, uh, especially in deposition, you want to set them up for success. You know, I always anticipate that we're going to trial. I think that's very important for any expert to do is to always anticipate you're going to trial with the diverse type of juries that you and I are discussing right now and uh, making sure that we set ourselves up for success as experts. So if I get an attorney that asks me an incomplete hypothetical because they're going to do that because they want a favorable response, right? You know, that's why they're doing the hypothetical that most benefits them. And I always say, well, in your imperfect or incomplete hypothetical, this would be the answer. Yeah. <laughs> and it just sort of, it just sort of sets us up where he knows, okay, I think when I get into court, I don't think I want to ask Dr. Martinelli that question because that's exactly the answer he's going to give me. I don't like that answer. So I won't ask that hypothetical when we get to court, you know? Well, Joni, let's take another break, uh, and we'll come back, and let's talk some cases, okay, and, and, uh, and talk about juries and how they responded in different cases we have. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field, and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the war on police at Amazon.com. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli with my co-host, forensic psychologist and member of our forensic death investigations team, Dr. Joni Johnson. And we've been talking, Joni, about the jury mindset, but I thought it might be kind of uh, interesting for our listeners and our team members to hear some cases. So would you like to start out and why don't we trade cases back and forth and bring it around full circle to uh, what happened with respect to the jury? One of the cases that comes to mind for me was a case that involved um, a defendant and it was really kind of a tragic case all the way around. This was a, a young man who really didn't have any criminal history did have a history of bipolar disorder, had a pre-existing history of hospitalization, had been taking some medication, but had decided, sadly, after be feeling really good for nine months, which is not uncommon, that he no longer needed to take his medication. So he went off his medication over a period of six, seven weeks, began feeling different, but happy because a lot of times in the early stages of bipolar disorder, there's kind of a hypomania and people are happier, have more energy, they're more talkative. It's kind of a reinforcing thing. It's just when it get when it escalates, it becomes unpleasant and can be dangerous to themselves primarily. But this particular gentleman was driving down the road and had been hearing some voices having some strange thoughts. And this was shortly after 9-11. And all of a sudden, looked over, he's driving down the five, heading towards San Diego, and he sees a man who is wearing um, maybe his job. And all of a sudden, he hears a message from God telling him that this particular man is on the way to the San Diego airport to blow it up, and that he, in fact, needs to stop this man. So he proceeds to run this man off the road, 
and this man and his wife were in the car. They stopped the car. They have, of course, have no idea what's going on. And then he proceeds to ram his car into their car. Wow. Fortunately, nobody was seriously injured. Um, this particular person was arrested, was charged with assault with a deadly weapon. I mean, he was facing years of imprisonment. And he had an attorney who was very invested in his case, I think for a number of different reasons, again, two reasons, really one, he had no criminal history and a, a violent behavior at all. And number two, he did have this very, very lengthy, I mean, this history of pre-existing mental illness. And when you're talking about an insanity plea, you know, as an evaluator, that certainly is absolutely almost critical because it's pretty difficult to explain or to even believe that you have somebody who's a fully functioning member of society and then all of a sudden commits this horrendous crime and they're insane when they have no criminal, you know, no history of mental illness yeah. at all. And so he called me to come in and evaluate him. And I spoke with, you know, interviewed, evaluated him. I evaluated his family. I evaluated, I actually think I actually talked to the victims. They were amenable to that. Um, got the police reports and, you know, and there's just a lot of, of substantiating factors. The hardest thing, of course, is that this was premeditated on a very minor scale. And that's one of the things I think that jurors have a hard time with, is the fact that here is somebody who's driving down the road, he looks over, he sees somebody, he makes a deliberate decision, which he did, to run this person off the road, then he proceeds to ram his car. And that's one of the most difficult things, I think, for jurors to understand. But Julie, let, let me just say one thing. Don't you find that there is a difference between uh, premeditation and then spontaneous uh, a spontaneous action right a spontaneous a thought okay in other words he sees this guy just like you say he sees this guy and he deliberately does what he does uh, in running him off the road but do you see a difference between uh, premeditation which to me means planning Okay. Clear, absolutely. You're okay. absolutely right. And I think the planning part initially for the juror, and this was after the fact, of course, uh, the jurors were saying this, the, the, the tricky part of that initially was not the initial running off the road, but it was observing him running off the road and then proceed to ram his car. Got it. Right. So to that Got extent, it. it initially appeared to be a planned kind of attack. But you're right. I mean, it was not like this person was out following this person, knew this person, had a grudge against this person. I mean, these are the things we think about when we think about planning, right? Going right. after a particular person. Exactly. Um, and so fortunately in this case, I was able to evaluate this person and again, gather as much information. He was subsequently hospitalized. He was subsequently, you know, kind of re-diagnosed with bipolar disorder and put on medication. And then he had, you know, he really did have, a, I think, a tremendous amount of remorse for what he had done. Um, and so in this situation, I was kind of lucky because, and let me, I say lucky, but often times this is the case. Two-thirds of the time when an insanity plea is successful, there's no dueling of the experts. What happens is the prosecution and the defense get together and kind of go, yeah, clearly from all the evidence, this person was legally insane at the time. And so based on my report and the police reports and all the information, fortunately in this case, the prosecutor and the defense agreed that this was an insanity case. And so he, he pled to that and he went to the hospital for an extended period of time. Okay. 
All right. Well, that that's absolutely fascinating. I'm going to share with you uh, this Officer Derek Wiley case uh, that I just finished with a couple of months ago, and it was up in Dallas County uh, in the state of Texas. So we had Officer Derek Wiley, uh, a stellar police officer by by all accounts, uh, never been in any trouble, had, had uh, been a field training officer, which is a position of trust uh, and honor and uh, done traffic enforcement, all sorts of different um, responsible positions in the Mesquite uh, Police Department, which is outside of Dallas. And this happened on a very cold February morning, and I believe it was actually uh, February of either uh, 2017 or, or 2018. It was a very new case for me. Some of my cases are relatively older. Uh, and so Derek Wiley gets uh, called out on a suspicion person, suspicious vehicle call at night, and he gets out in this giant parking lot of this large manufacturing company, which was closed uh, for operations for the evening, but it did have a skeleton staff and it did have administrative staff, meaning the co-CEOs, which happened to be brothers at the time, were working late in the office. And, and the brothers had spotted this vehicle parked way up into their parking lot. And of course, it's dark there, but there was overhead lighting. And uh, they're watching this guy through the windows because his car was beeping the horn and the lights were flashing on and off uh, like the, the burglar alarm for the car was on. And it would go on and then it would go off and go on and off. All of a sudden, they see the guy get out and he's sort of naked uh, from the waist up. And he doesn't have any, doesn't he have any shoes or socks on? Well, this happened to be that particularly February morning so far that year had been the coldest day of the year. And so it was down about 40 degrees and, and it was raining and dark and foggy and just miserable, I mean, environmentally and, and visually. Anyway, Officer Wiley gets out there. And uh, what was interesting about this case when he made contact with this man is that everything was on dash cam and on body cam. And he immediately, as he goes over to go talk with the guy, he immediately starts getting uh, his antennas up because the guy was acting in a way that Officer Wiley s said to him that this guy is going to arm himself with a gun. And he, uh, you know, I'm going to sort of cut to the chase here, but everything the man did, every single thing that he did was non-compliant with the officer and led the officer to believe through the furtive movements that the man was armed. Anyway, Wiley gets him out of the car. He uh, is trying to call for backup, but the radio's not working right. And uh, he knows backup is coming, but he doesn't know exactly when. He wants to get him on the ground so he can handcuff this guy because he's thinking this guy is definitely under the influence of drugs because the guy was just acting so bizarre. Uh, if you would have seen this guy, Joni, you probably would have thought it was one of your people, okay, one of your mental health people. But he was under the influence of cocaine and marijuana and stuff, very, very high and uh, hyperthermic, which is, in other words, he's overheated. That's why he's got his clothes off. And as Wiley goes to handcuff the guy, they get in a fight, and they get on a, in a fight for his life on the ground, and they're rolling around. The guy's trying to grab for his gun, and he keeps going on his left side where Wiley thought he had his gun in a pocket. And then the guy gets up, and instead of running away from Officer Wiley, he moves out about 12 feet from him and all of a sudden reaches into his pocket and pulls out a black object and spins around and points this thing directly at Wiley. And Wiley goes, oh, my God, I'm going to die. And he fires twice and hits this guy 
uh, both times. But the first time uh, when he hit him, the guy had already started to kind of turn around. And so I end up getting two shots in the back vertical to each other, and the guy goes down. He doesn't kill him, but he seriously injures him at the time. This officer, and by the way, this is all on body camera. This officer got prosecuted, and what do we find in the guy's hand or on the ground now? A black cell phone. So we've got two shots in the back, even though there were more in the side, and we've got a cell phone on the ground. And by the way, the man he shot was also black. And all of a sudden, even though Wiley has been completely cooperative during the course of the investigation, they take him to the grand jury, and he is uh, found uh, to be held over and indicted for, uh, uh, for aggravated assault. And boy, I will tell you what, uh, the jury, it took, I think, two days to impanel a jury. Uh, we went through 174 jurors, Joni, and uh, to find uh, 12 jurors and two alternates. And just sort of to cut to the chase, uh, I, did, uh, I did everything I could to try to explain to the jury exactly what was going on and getting them into the mind and the, the, you know, the shoes of Officer Wiley, I was told that I dispelled a lot of myths and broke down the prosecutor's case completely. And they went in to go vote. And the first vote within the first 15 minutes was 10 to acquit and two holdouts. 10 to acquit and two holdouts. And here's, and here's the thing. The two people that wanted to convict him, which were two uh, African-American women, young people, millennials, it had nothing to do with whether Wiley was, was guilty or innocent. It had everything to do with the fact that Officer Wiley and his twin brother, who's a state trooper, were both married to white women, and they did not think that was right. Now, these were women that went through the entire vetting process, 45-page questionnaire and intense questioning, and they managed to sneak through that vetting process. Thank God the other 10 people took another day and a half, and the other 10 people talked them out of convicting that poor officer, who was, to me, factually innocent. Wow. I mean, that is a fascinating story. You know, one of the things that I, one question I have for you, Ron, because I think most people obviously have never been a police officer and there's been some bad press for the, with police officers unfortunately absolutely some, some of it earned some of it not earned and i agree with you, you know? some of it earned and some of it some not of it, earned and for sure and so i'm just wondering ron that must be a huge challenge to to try to to try to take 12 people who have had no experience with law enforcement generally and help them understand what that would be like. I mean, how do you do that? Well, it, it, it's, a, it's a real challenge. And so what I try to do, and, I, and this is my strategy, no matter what side I'm on, it doesn't matter, okay? Because I'm a facts and evidence guy. It is always nice when the forensic evidence and the circumstances and everything support the representation of an officer or, you know, a citizen. Uh, but that doesn't always happen, as you know. And yeah. I call them as it is. But my strategy is always with police officer cases that I am going to go nowhere unless I can put the juror in that officer's 
shoes and in his mindset in the milliseconds it took to make a deadly force decision. And I want to share something with you. Forensically, I was able to prove this, and it's because I have such a phenomenal staff, people just like you. That's so important because we talked about, you know, the confirmation bias and the availability bias or the implicit bias. But I think you, I would imagine that your biggest challenge might be the hindsight bias, you know, which is now the Monday morning quarterbacking. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, that's so interesting that you bring that up. The 2020 hindsight is actually precluded. So experts cannot use 2020 hindsight. In the law enforcement community, there's actually a huge Supreme Court case called Graham versus Connor, 1989, that says that we cannot use 2020 hindsight. But I see prosecutors using 2020 hindsight all the time. And how they prosecuted him, you know, why they went before the grand jury and of course I I couldn't go there you know it's not uh, it's not my deal but they said I got two holes in the back and I got a cell phone okay and the jury went with two holes in the back and a cell phone but when we were able to present the forensic evidence there was no doubt in 10 of those jurors minds right off as soon as it was explained and I went through all of it. Believe You should have seen the presentation of evidence. I went through every bit of it. Uh, the biomechanics, the medical stuff, the trajectories, the ballistics, everything. They understood. Thank God. And then they finally convinced the two women that were the holdouts that that's what really happened. And thank God for that officer, the women in the end did the right thing. I'm really glad to hear that. And it seems like, you know, unfortunately in a way that, you know, because the attorneys can't do the hindsight bias thing and maybe you can't, but jurors are going to do that. Yes. And so they are going to do that. That's just human nature. And so it sounds like your strategy is you just kind of outlined is, okay, what I've got to do is help them understand, take them back in time and help them understand what that person was going through at the time. No, you know, that's exactly right. And we only have a few more minutes. Would you mind if I talk about one more case really quick? I'd love to hear it. Okay, well, I've got another case that I just did last month, and it was the Officer um, Zachariah Presley case, and this is out of Camden County, uh, Georgia, so I'm down in the deep south, and now I've got a white officer that shoots uh, a black suspect, and it was so similar to the Officer Wiley case, it was it was just uncanny, uh, another shooting in the in the darkness of night on a body cam with the guy uh, down on the ground, life and death struggle with the officer, grabbing the officer's gun, knocked the taser out of his hand, had actually picked the officer up and dumped him on his head at one point. Okay, another guy under the influence of cocaine, uh, just a crazy guy. This involved a 450-yard foot pursuit, if you can imagine that, in the just the dark of night. And uh, after the guy dumped the officer, fought with him, tried to grab his gun, uh, he got up. And this is another one where the officer believed he had a gun the whole time. The guy's running with a dark object in his hand. Uh, that he went back to the car to retrieve and then ran again. When he spun around, he didn't try to run away. He ran out about another 10 feet, spun around just like in the Wiley case. And uh, and the officer said, oh, my God, I'm never going to see my family again. And he, and, he, and he shot him and everything. And that was another one where, where 2020 hindsight came into play. But here's the kicker before the end of the program. The kicker was they acquitted him on, and he killed him, he acquitted him on two counts 
of, uh, of manslaughter, both voluntarily and involuntary manslaughter, but then they turned around and they convicted him for violating the oath of office, which is a very strange um, uh, statute they have there. So they found that the shooting was justified but then they felt that they had to give the protesting community something back. So that's when they went into 2020 hindsight and decided, well, if he would have done this or he could have done that or he would have done this or that, which is all 2020 hindsight, this man would have been alive today. But you know what? The unfortunate thing, after getting acquitted, my officer is still in a Camden County jail for a year. Hmm. So that's a, that's a tragic case. It sounds like all the way around. And I'll tell you, you know, I'm not familiar with the, some of the cases that you've been involved in because we have kind of different wheelhouses, but I will tell you one thing. I've seen plenty of guys in the throes of meth and nothing surprises me. Oh no. I mean, it, it's, uh, it, it's such a horrible thing, uh, for both of us, Joni, you know, with, with me, I have officers and I have individuals that are under the, you know, that officers that have to deal with these people under the influence of drugs. I also have, uh, criminal defendants or I have uh, plaintiffs that have, that have passed or been seriously injured or, you know, by, by the police under the influence of drugs. And of course you get them uh, because we know that these drugs are, are gateway to mental health problems. And so that's what brings you and I uh, into this sphere of influence with regards to these things. So it's, it's just a terrible thing all around. It really is. Well, listen, Joni, we're just about out of time. God, we could have gone for another couple of hours here. <laughs> as, uh, usual. as usual. <laughs> but uh, I just want to thank you uh, so much uh, for being on a thread of evidence. And I hope everybody will take an opportunity to listen to Dr. Joni Johnson and, and myself, Dr. Ron Martinelli, on a thread of evidence. Joni brings in the most fascinating guests and deals with the uh, forensic psychology. And of course, I'm dealing with the forensics and the law enforcement and the officer involved shootings and all the crazy CSI stuff. Please take a moment, uh, if you enjoy these programs, to pick up America Out Loud on its app on Android and iPhone. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli and our forensic psychologist and co-host on a thread of evidence on America Out Loud.